what COVID-19 wake-up call he received as a financial advisor, how to start building wealth when you're young step-by-step, which debts to pay off first, and what things you should be thinking about when going to buy a house, all coming right up. This is episode number 187 with financial advisor with Raymond James Financial Services, Tom Peterson. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. My mission is to help you gain clarity on what the best version of yourself looks like, and then provide you with the tools, tips, and inspiration on how to make that person become a reality. Today, I bring you Tom Peterson. Tom is a financial advisor with Raymond James. Tom is here today to help you navigate your financial struggles and worries that COVID-19 has created. And he's here to help you navigate and simplify the art of taking care of your financial well-being. Be sure to take a screenshot and post it to your Instagram stories and tag me at carrier underscore best you to let me know that you're listening. Without further ado, here's to getting closer to your best you with Tom Peterson. All right, what's up everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I am super excited to bring you guys a very valuable episode, uh, especially with the times that we're in right now with the one and only Tom Peterson. Tom, I wanna start off by just thanking you with being here uh, for being here with me today. Thanks for having me, Nick. Yeah, of course. So to introduce you real quick, Tom Peterson is a financial advisor with Raymond James Financial Services in Clearwater, Florida. And like I said, I think this is really important to be talking about right now. It's always important to talk about financial stuff and gives people a little bit of help and guidance and practical tips and stuff like that. But with coronavirus and with quarantine life, I know it's even more so at the top of people's minds with their concerns that they might have about their own financial well-being. So I appreciate you spending the time and bringing that value to us today. The way I want to start is just saying, what's kind of the biggest question, comment, or concern that people are coming to you guys with right now during this time? Well, I think, you know, a lot of it is this, everything that we're going on with the virus is unique in that people have a a health concern and a health crisis that the whole country and the whole world is going to on top of uh, an economic crisis. And, you know, the stock market has come down quite a bit. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's, you know, record unemployment. Things that normally take several months happened in the period of, of just a couple of weeks. So it's been a, a huge adjustment for everybody to, to get used to. And I think the main concerns that people, that, that our clients in particular have is, is they want to know that they're safe with their investments. And, you know, they want to know I guess which risks to to look out for uh, in terms of if we do get into a recession, which we pretty much are in one now, you know, what type of ways can can they mitigate risk? And and basically, are they okay for the long term? Because a lot of our clients are retirees. And so, you know, they don't have employment income coming in. And so really, they just want to know, you know, what the, the impact of the stock market and the impact of their investments is you know, what that does for their future. And it's really an uh, uh, unprecedented time. Yeah, I, everyone's been using the word unprecedented, but it's, it's really been a, a, a pretty remarkable change in, in, you know, just about everything in daily life. So I think people are first worried about keeping themselves healthy. You know, that's, that's the number one concern of our clients right now. And so yeah. I think in a time where people would usually be a lot more worried about their accounts or the stock market, we have two things distracting us and, and the priority always is takes over with health. So, you know, most of our clients have been able to, to stay healthy and, you know, kind of put their perspectives. They, they've been through bull and bear markets before they've been to 2008 and 2001. And so, you know, they know that things will eventually come back from this too. 
Okay. So I'm going to flip the coin on you because you are in the younger demographic and we haven't necessarily experienced as much of a decline like this in our lifetime necessarily. Like we've seen the financial crisis in 2008, but we weren't necessarily in the old enough to kind of be in that state of like, what's going on? What am I going to do about this? So ever since this happened, what's been maybe your your personal biggest concern because you are a financial advisor, so you know a little bit, you have a little bit more knowledge about how to handle things. What's maybe your biggest concern right now? Well, my biggest concern, you know, I would say in terms of, of the economy and, and everything that I just see on, on my day-to-day life is really just the, the, the economic destruction that we've seen in terms of jobs and especially small businesses. And, you know, even though, it's, you know, I'm in Florida, so a lot of our restaurants have been able to stay open to do takeout uh, and certain businesses have been able to stay open. But really just the, the mom and pop businesses and all of the restaurants and all of the closed down doors that I see around is really pretty scary in the sense that, you know, the, the government provided, uh, they passed a, a $2.2 trillion fiscal stimulus and that was was meant to be kind of a, a bridge loan to both to individuals through the direct payments that people received and also some type of forgivable loan and grants to small businesses. But I think my biggest concern is, is how long this period of lockdowns and social quarantine and social separation continues. Because I think for a lot of businesses, what the government had did with the stimulus that they passed would be able to get them through a few months of this. But if we continue to see, you know, a bigger wave of this outbreak or more economic stress from not just the U.S., but globally, the impact of this, you know, I think that a lot of small businesses are going to have a really hard time opening up again. Uh, I think it's already that way. You're going to see a lot of businesses just close permanently. And, yeah. and that is sort of the, the natural effects of capitalism and, and to some degree is that certain businesses eventually get washed out and, and that brings room for new opportunity and, and new businesses and new growth. But we've never seen anything where every single sector of everybody, you know, everybody you know has been affected by this in some way. And so my biggest concern is just how long this lasts and what it does to to small businesses and, and really just the ability for people to work. You know, it was crazy that we had come from almost full employment, record employment of just about any metric you look at on the stock market or on the, the economy, things were rolling along so well. And in the span of two or three weeks, everything was just flip-flopped. And so it, it's just remarkable to see. And so I, I think really, you know, that, that would be it. Yeah. How about um, with you, like on a more personal level, have there been things that you were like, I need to do this differently moving forward because something like this could happen again down the road in the future? And like, there's always going to be, you know, the market volatility going up and down. Are there different things that you're saying to yourself now that I'm like, I need to do maybe something differently to maybe protect myself down the road from something similar to this, maybe not on this magnitude and this scale, but protect myself from something similar like this happening down the road? Sure. Yeah, I think this is a, a good wake up call for for myself and that I, I consider my job to be pretty stable. Uh, you know, even through as a financial advisor, you know, if the economy goes through a rough patch and we go through a recession, that's where people need financial advice the most. 
And so I was never really concerned about, you know, losing my job or anything like that. But when this all happened, it really made me wake up to say, even if you are in a job that isn't directly impacted by an economic recession, and it is in some ways a financial advisor, you know, anything can happen. And so for me personally, I, I realized the importance of maybe increasing my emphasis on an emergency fund just to have some, some cash for a rainy day. And also, it made me kind of reevaluate my financial position in, in terms of debt. Uh, because I was thinking about buying a house in, in the last couple months. And, you know, this really made me rethink, you know, I was sitting here thinking, gosh, the economy is great. Interest rates are low. The outlook for the housing market is great. You know, what could go wrong? And I guess it was a, a good wake up call to remind me that anything is possible. And, and, you know, when you think everything is perfect is, is when you should really look out for the unexpected. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. That's a that's a big takeaway for sure. A reality check for all of us, I think. So you you had mentioned, you know, the re-emphasis kind of in your mind about that rainy day fund, about that emergency fund. Let's kind of talk towards somebody who's younger and they don't have a whole lot of the bank account. They might have a little bit of savings, but in their mind, they're like, I want to start building up my savings account. I want to start making decisions now to build up my wealth for the future. What is maybe the first thing that I need to do in order to start doing that? Yeah, so I would always suggest prioritizing a rainy day fund or an emergency fund. And bef- and for and I know we've used I know we've used the emergency and rainy day fund term, but let's go ahead and define that for everybody else too. Yeah, so the the kind of the rule of thumb is that you should have between three and six months of your expenses saved. And so really you should ask yourself, if I lost my job today, if all of my income were to stop, how long can I go with paying my necessary bills, you know, your, your rent or your mortgage or your car payment, all the stuff that you need to pay? Can I make it somewhere between three to six months? And so that's kind of the, the gauge. And, you know, there's no perfect answer, whether it's six, maybe you're a little bit more conservative or risk averse, and you just feel security having a little bit more cash in a, a savings fund or a rainy day fund. Or if you think that your job is relatively stable and you'd get through that time period okay, maybe you can err on the side of three months. But somewhere between that is, is what you should start with before even thinking about making some kind of investment or, or buying stocks or anything like that. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I really like I really like that tip for people because it's such a practical tip. It's like get a number for your monthly expenses, you know, multiply it by three to six depending on your comfort level and then get to that number. Okay, let's say the person gets to that number, then what's next? Exactly. Uh, oh, so it, what's next? So I would say, you know, for somebody who I, I kind of would take it in two directions. You know, I think the first step after you have your your rainy day fund or your emergency fund would be to look at paying off debt. And and there is a, sort of a, a spectrum of debt. I would say that there's good debt, there's some some middle tier debt, and then there's bad debt. And so the first step would be, and again, this is before investing, and and I'll get into kind of retirement plans at work. I think that's important too. But the first step would be to pay off starting with your highest interest debt. And that's almost always a credit card debt. And that's what I would consider a bad debt is that it carries the highest interest rates because you could easily default on it. People do all the time, but the credit card companies just ruin your credit and you don't want bad credit at our age. You You want good credit be able to get a mortgage and a car payment and everything. But that is really, credit card debt is the first place that I would look to pay off because 
when interest rates are you know 15 16 17 percent on credit cards there's that snowball effect where even if you're you're making especially if you're making the minimum payment but even if you're paying a good chunk off every month just the interest is going to continue to grow and it eventually just gets to be completely unmanageable so after you've prioritized and, and set some money aside whatever that might be the first focus should always be credit card debt and then you know depending on what you are looking to do you know you could also look at paying off what i would consider kind of the the middle middle tier debt which is student loan debt and and car payments depending on where the interest rates are really and i think that's important for people to get is to say you know if if you have cash or what i like to think of it as is assets and liabilities and assets is what you own and liabilities is what you owe and so if you're looking at if you have some some money in cash and you're looking at what to do with it you know let's say i have a student loan debt that's at 5% a student uh, student loan you need to look at that as saying okay i can pay off this debt which i am paying 5% to have that money lent to me and compare that to what am i doing with my cash and if the cash is just sitting in your savings account with interest rates low right now, it's practically earning probably less than 1% on your average savings account, then it might make sense to start working towards paying off some of that debt, especially like a car loan, which is kind of a, a depreciating asset. You know, that is also a, a decent idea. Now, I wouldn't get carried away with paying off debt. And it really depends on where your interest rate is. I have a car loan. The interest rate is like 2.2%, which is, is ridiculously low. And so if you compare that to what can I do with my cash, if I had it just sitting in a savings account, then it might make sense to pay that off. So I think that's really the context that people should look at when they think of paying off debt is that you are earning a guaranteed rate of return on that interest rate of your debt by paying it off with your cash. Mm, gotcha. Yeah. I really liked how you distinguish the difference between you know the you own and then you owe and you want to make sure you compare the interest rates that you owe on the thing compared to the thing that you own. And if the thing that you own can earn more interest than the thing that you owe, then you don't necessarily have to pay that off as quickly, I guess, is what I'm understanding. Yeah. And and I think everyone has a different opinion on paying off debt. Mm -hmm. you know, there's there's a, a lot of different philosophies on debt management. And I think there's no right or wrong answer because in terms of financial advice, and that's a, a very broad scope of what you read on the internet, financial personalities that you see on TV or that you hear on the radio, or maybe personal finance programs that you can go into. There's a lot of people that would probably disagree with me and say, you should, you should pay off all of your debt before you think about doing anything else. And so I think that there's a lot of different ways of looking at it. And, and there really isn't a right or wrong answer, as long as you have some kind of justification behind what you're doing. Yeah, I think that's really important because I feel like, you know, the way we've, we're talking about it in terms of like interest rates and percentages and what's going to cost you more, what's going to earn you more, that sort of thing. Like that's very like the justification is because the math makes sense. But another justification is like somebody else is like, I'm not going to do that math. I'm not going to put in the time to actually calculate that thing that thing out. So I need to do basically advice with another good justification that works better for me. Exactly. I think it really comes down to your own your own values with debt. I think people are just some people 
depending on, on how they were raised, just do not like the idea of having debt or paying interest. Some people mm. are, are just plainly irresponsible with debt. And as soon as they pay it off, it'll find some way of coming back. And there's also some people that look, like to look at things mathematically. And so I would say if you're thinking about starting at the highest interest debt, paying that off first, and then comparing it to what you earn on your cash and what you could pay off debt, that's more of your analytical type of, of thinker to where they like things to work out mathematically. And then I think on the flip side of that, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with, with Dave Ramsey and, and his philosophy, and he would completely disagree with that. And he would say that you should pay off all of your debt as quickly as possible, because as soon as you are debt free is when you can begin to build your wealth. It shouldn't really be at the same time. And so his philosophy, which I think is also very valid, and it makes sense for a lot of people, is to start at the smallest debt that you have. And I think his plays more into the per, uh, behavioral finance and in the psychology of, of money and paying off debt because people get really overwhelmed when they have you know four or five different credit cards that they're paying off. Each one carries a different percent interest. They got a student loan over here and another one over here. And just all of those payments at different times of the month can just overwhelm people. And so his philosophy is to pay off the smallest one first, regardless of the interest, because that is a win. You're eliminating that one credit card bill or debt payment that you have, and that frees up your mind psychologically, and, and there's an emotional benefit to it. And I think that really resonates with a lot of people, and especially if you aren't into the analytical side of things, you know, that might make even more sense for people. So I know Dave Ramsey is a really popular, you know, a lot of people I've, my age I've heard have gone through his program and have gotten a lot from it. And so there's no right or wrong answer to it. Both will get you to a better place financially. Yeah, I think you know, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of saying that really works well for people who are not necessarily on the analytical side of things because it does it does play much more into the psychology. It's like, okay, I got this I got this checkbox completed and out of the way. Now I can move on to this one. And a lot of times when it comes to finances, people if they don't have guidance, they need it as simplistic as possible. And when it's like as simplistic as like pay this one off and then that one and that one, sometimes that can work better for people. But like you said, if you have somebody who can help you a little bit more on the analytical side, purely for math justifications, it can make more sense to do it the way that we had kind of discussed a little bit beforehand. Yeah. And I think as a financial advisor, when, when our clients come to us and talk about paying off different debt, because we have the ability to, to work with them, to explain things to them and talk to them every couple of weeks and kind of walk them through it a little bit more, I think I can give people a little bit more confidence with the more analytical side than they might not normally want to do if they were searching on the computer for answers or All going right. through, you know, just looking up on, on websites. And so what I would suggest to people really is to find a source of personal finance information, one source, whether that be someone like Dave Ramsey, or there's a couple people that are in personal finance or even websites that have a, a kind of a consistent message and really focus on that. Because if you look long enough on several different topics, some things are black and white, but there's a lot of topics that really come down to personal opinion. And I think it's important that people get one source of information, commit to that, and really just to commit to follow through on, on whatever this person says, assuming that they're, they're credible and they know what they're doing. Right. No, I like that a lot because a lot of times if you only take bits and pieces from a lot of different people, it's the 
the justifications from all those people don't necessarily align. So I think that's a really good point. Okay, so we kind of took a first couple steps. You said, you know, prioritize a rainy day fund back to simplification, back to the starting with the rainy day fund, and then, you know, kind of evaluating your debt and come up with a game plan that's justified for whatever reason you decide. Then what after that can I do to start building my wealth? Yeah, so I would say the the next step would be to start investing through your retirement plan at work. And this is usually uh, either a 401k or some type of profit sharing plan where you're making a, a contribution yourself. And especially if your employer offers some type of match, that is something where even if you didn't plan on saving, let's say you wanted to prioritize paying off your debt first. And I personally think everybody should at least contribute a little bit into a, a 401k plan. I think it's just a good habit to get into. A lot of them automatically enroll you, so you have to opt out of it. So, you know, even if it's just a couple percent each year, you know, the compounding effect over time will, will really do a lot for you. So going back to the, the employer match, though, if you have an employer match, you should certainly invest at least that amount in order to get that match because that is free money. And that is the best guaranteed return on your money that, that you'll ever find if your employer matches you 1% for the first thousand or first 1% or whatever like that. It's essentially a 100% return. So that's a good place to start. And really, I think in terms of savings, if you want to, to, to build wealth for your future, the best way to do that is, is to, to owning companies, which you know, if you think about anyone who has built wealth or, or you know, the, the big successful people, JP Morgan or Rockefeller or Bezos or, or Zuckerberg, everybody owned a percentage of a business. And the stock market gives us a very effective, efficient way of owning very small individual pieces of businesses. And really, it lets you participate in, in the entire growth of, of the US economy. And so over time, especially if you start young, that is really where you will build your wealth. And, and, and in terms of, you know, there's tax advantages to the 401k too. So, you know, there's the tax advantages. And then there's also, I think, the behavioral side of it and that you can't get to that money until you're retired or until you're 59 and a half without, you know, having to pay tax and, and getting a penalty on it. So I think it's really good for people with their long-term savings to get it out of reach or at least know that you're going to get your hand slapped if you try to go take it out early. And so I'm a, I'm a big fan of you know, kind of behavioral things, of, of little mind tricks, psychological or, or uh, mental accounting. And I think saving in a, a retirement plan is going to be the best way to build your, your long-term wealth, and especially to retirement if you one day want you know stop working and continue to support that lifestyle and, and reach your goals eventually. Gotcha. Awesome. So in retirement plans, a lot of times people have the option to do the traditional kind of IRA and 401k and then the Roth IRA. I want you to talk to a little bit about kind of what the differences simply are between those two and, you know, how somebody can go about deciding which one I should put how much into. Yeah. So simply, I'll try to explain it as simply as possible. Some of the tax terms it can get a little bit confusing, but essentially when you're contributing to a traditional 401k. That is called a, a deductible contribution. So the government is basically saying it, money that you are contributing to this account, or the IRS is saying, money that you're contributing to this account, we would normally tax you on your income before you were able to, to start investing it. But in a traditional 401k or even a traditional IRA, the IRS is saying, 
we'll let you take that money pre-tax so and contribute it to that account. So when you put that money in, it is your contribution or your part of it. And it's also part of the IRS's money that they normally would have taken had that money been taxed. And so it allows you to invest a bigger amount in your retirement account with the idea that that will help grow and compound. And so eventually when you go to take it out in retirement, that money is then taxed. So essentially with the traditional 401k, and this is where it gets confusing, is that the money is not taxed now. They let you put all of it in the account and you pay taxes on it when you take it out. And the idea is that when you're working, your tax bracket and your income is higher than it would be in retirement. So if you're in, in your working age, when you're you know, 30s, 40s, your tax bracket is going to be higher than when you go to take it out in retirement, ideally, or, or usually it's, it's a little bit lower. Now compared to, does that make sense or is there anything I need to? No, I think I, to me, I think the couple of biggest points is that you get to put more money in now but it's taxed later. And then the other big thing was that you kind of do that because you put more money in now because instead of being taxed at a higher percentage now, you get to be taxed at a lower percentage later. Right. And and that's, I think, the concept of it. You know, not everybody has a lower tax bracket when they're in retirement. Right. right. That, that That's just kind of like more of the ideal scenario, I would guess. Exactly. And, and also, I think with another point, is that all of your gains from here, you know, I'm 30. So all of my gains on a contribution to a 401k, when I go to pull them out in 30 years or 40 years, all of my gains are then taxed too. And so that is the biggest difference when you compare it to a Roth 401k or a Roth IRA. And that, and it's, Roths are, it make really good sense for people when they're young. Um, because of the tax advantage. So on a Roth, uh, a Roth IRA means it's an after-tax contribution. And so instead of of paying or contributing to the account pre-tax, instead of paying or contributing that more or higher amount, um, the IRS is saying, you're going to pay tax on this income now, contribute it to this account, and it will grow tax-free, and it will be tax-free in retirement. And so that's why a Roth IRA is such an advantage when you're younger, and especially before if you if you you know expect your income to increase throughout your career, you can pay tax on that money now, you know ideally or or hopefully at a lower rate, and it will grow tax free for the rest of your life, and it's tax free in retirement. And so the Roth IRA, when you have more time to let the money compound and to let the money grow, really makes a lot of sense. And so, you know, I think at the same time, though, both of these types of accounts are also based on the current tax code. And in my opinion, you know, the traditional IRA uh, isn't great for, for younger people because you have so much time to let that money grow and all of those gains are taxed at your normal income rates, where in a regular account, it actually would be at a slightly lower rate, which is capital gains, which you know, is for a, a different discussion. Um, so the Roth IRA tax-wise is a better deal for younger people, but it does also eat into your refund and it does eat into your after-tax income that you get paid from your paycheck because you are paying taxes on that amount. So if you max out your Roth 401k, that's $18,000 that you're paying taxes on when you do your tax return 
compared to if you maxed out your traditional 401k, you're not paying taxes on that $18,000 that you uh, contributed to. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, you know, one of the things that's kind of concerning both of the traditional and the Roth is what you perceive the tax rate for yourself is going to be when you're older, when you retire. How should somebody go about kind of thinking about what is my tax rate going to be when I retire? Because, because again, very simplified, there's a lot more detail than this. It's like, okay, right now, if my if I feel my tax rate is going to be higher when I retire, I want to do focus on a little bit more on the Roth and vice versa with the traditional. So what's, what's maybe something someone can do to determine what they think their tax rate when they retire is going to be? Yeah, I mean, you can obviously look at, at what you think to be the, the trajectory of your career. And I think most people, if, if you know that you're going to have the same job and you know maybe that there's something to compare it to, or if you're not sure what you're going to be doing for the rest of your career, there's really no way to know. And at the same time, there's also no way to know what tax rates are going to be for people that far out into the future. You know, the tax rates right now are relatively cheap since 2017. Individual tax rates have been really low. You know, if you compare that to the 70s, and and I, I think I'm not really an expert on the historical tax rates, but, you know, decades ago, tax rates were extremely high. So they could be extremely high in the future. They could be extremely low in the future. And there's really nowhere to know. And that's why, you know, some of this is, is sort of a guess and, you know, a hope of, of where the tax code will be. But I think overall, it's a, it's a safe bet to at least do a combination of 50% Roth, 50% traditional, or, or some kind of combination, just so that you have a little bit in uh, an account that will grow tax-free and, and there's going to be tax-free distributions. And at the same time, you have a little bit where you know it's a, a pre-tax contribution like a traditional 401k, and that'll be taxed in the future. Who knows? Maybe they'll change the, the traditional 401k or IRA rules to where it's a little bit more favorable. It's been discussed, but it's just impossible yeah. to know. And I think that's a good way. I think most people would just maybe split it up and to say 50-50 or 60-40 or however you want to do it and just decide that way. But if you're younger, you certainly want to have some, some amount that's contributing to a Roth. And if you're going to pick one to contribute more of, I would suggest more of on the Roth side. But if somebody's older and closer to retirement, then you know maybe the traditional 401k could make sense. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I do at probably a little bit later at, towards the end, I want to maybe get a couple, maybe a quick discussion in about kind of like stock market and stuff like that and, and some things there. But before I get into that, I kind of want to discuss one of the, you know, the bigger issues that everybody, especially on the younger side is thinking about, but even, you know, older people starting families and stuff like that is buying a house. And I think that going into buying a house with the right strategy is super important for, you know, for anybody and, you know, know what you're doing and, and prepare for it accordingly. So what is somebody, what should somebody be doing right now if they're thinking, I know I want to buy a house, but I don't have any idea of how I should start preparing for that. What should I do? What's the first thing I need to do? Yeah, so I would say the first place to start would be to have a, a very accurate understanding of your expenses, uh, not just one particular month, but really over you know what you would consider to be a, a normal period of maybe five to six months. And that's different than a budget. 
because a lot of people, including myself, I'll set myself a budget where, you know, I'm going to spend this much on, on eating out and this much on food and, you know, this much on shopping or clothes and you never really follow it. So I think the best way to, to really get an idea of where your expenses are at is to use one of the apps. There's a lot of really good ones. Mint is the one that I use where you can categorize your spending. It hooks right up to your, your bank accounts and your checking accounts. From what I understand, it's, it's very secure. It's the same company that does TurboTax. And you can categorize at the end of each week, or, or I try to, but I go in and categorize each transaction. And whether it's, you know, groceries or eating out or, you know, going to a concert or going to a sporting event, they all fit into categories. And then at the end, you get a picture of several different months that you can kind of average together to see where your, your fixed expenses are and what they call your non-discretionary expenses that you can't get away from, that you always need to pay every month. And that's usually your bills and your insurance payments and, you know, food and all that stuff. And then I try to separate where my discretionary payments are. Where's, where's my fluff? You know, where, how much do I spend when I go out to an eat or, or go to the, a bar or a brewery or go to a sporting event uh, or go on vacation? And that's the area that you can kind of see where you can cut out a little bit if you need to. But I think it's very important to have a, a realistic understanding of your expenses. And then that way you can say, okay, of how much I earn, how much of this could I afford to spend on a house? And so the two ratios that they use in financial planning, and, and they're the same ratios that the banks and lenders look at when they look at someone's creditworthiness, is, is they call debt to income ratios. And the first one is that you shouldn't spend more than 28% of your gross income, meaning your income before taxes, on your total housing expense. And so that includes everything really that your mortgage includes. So principal and interest, which is, is the two components of your mortgage payment or your debt payment, and property taxes and homeowners insurance. And so all of those combined shouldn't be more than 28%. And then the second one is, is a 36% rule. And that brings in all of the other debt payments that you have. So in, in addition to your housing payments, it brings in credit card payments, student loans, car payments, just your total debt. And that's really the bank's way of seeing, okay, is this compared to what this person makes in income, they're pretty much saying, and the, kind of the rule of thumb is that once you get higher than 36% debt payments to your income, your debt payments can eventually become an issue and, and you might not be able to maintain that. And so that is, is really, I think, when someone's saying, okay, how much house can I afford? Uh, I think the biggest mistake is going to the bank or a lender and getting pre-approved and saying, okay, there's, there's my limit. Because in a good economy, the banks might even go a little bit higher than that. And so you know, that's a big part of how 2008 happened, is that you didn't really have to prove that you had a, a great job or that you had a lot of savings. You know, the banks had very easy lending standards and anybody could get a mortgage for any amount or at least maybe a, a more than what they could afford. And then, you know, you know how things turned out. So really use those rules as a gauge. And, and with real estate, I like to be a little bit more conservative where 28% should kind of be your, your maximum. And ideally, maybe you want to be closer to 20 if you can. But, you know, maybe if you, if you also don't have student loan debt or car debt, uh, or car payment, maybe you can go a little bit over 
you know, that, or at least maybe touch that 28%. But those are, are two important ratios that are, are important to look at when you think about what you can afford in terms of the house price. And the second thing is, is to make sure your credit score is in a, a good position. Uh, actually, I've, I'll kind of circle back first, though. Did you have any questions or if there's anything I need to clear up on on the debt to income? No, I think I think that's I think it's pretty simple. I guess I'll try to, you know, restate it again, simplistically to make sure that I understand it for, for my own is basically you want to start by making sure you have a real like you said, a realistic idea of what your expenses are and then break down that 28 percent and the third and the 36 percent, like look at kind of what you're making. Um, and look at the potential of what you would have to pay on that and make sure that the percentages line up. Right. And that, and that's just a quick way of saying, okay, you know, I, I was thinking about buying a house that was, you know, $250,000. Is that in my price range? You know, yeah. and I think a lot of people when they're, when they're getting into the stages of purchasing a house, which I, I was thinking I'm kind of in getting ready to be in that stage too. And these are the things that I'm going through is to get a, a good handle on my expenses, seeing you know how much house I can afford. It gives you just a, a good rule of thumb to know where you should be looking at. Let's actually, let's actually go into, I kind of want to do a, a, do a specific example with the percentages and with some numbers real quick to give everybody maybe a little bit more, it seems a little bit more tangible. Let's say you know, they're looking at buying a house and they see the house is $250,000 just because, you know, you brought that up. And then kind of what do they need to go be looking at after that? Kind of going, getting into what should my down payment be and compared to how much interest I might have to pay compared to how much income I might be bringing in kind of a thing. So let's kind of, I, I kind of want to evaluate a few of those numbers in a way that makes sense, I guess, for the listeners. Yeah, and, and I think... You know, the, the tough part about buying a house, especially when you compare it to, to renting, is the, the complexity of all of the moving parts that go into it. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's the interest expense, which luckily, you know, since 2008, uh, I think just yesterday, 30-year mortgage hit an all-time low. So that makes houses a lot more affordable. You know, I think a lot of people don't realize how much of each payment that they're making on their mortgage, especially in the beginning, is actually going towards interest. So when interest rates fall 1% like they have, that makes a lot of houses more affordable for the same payment. So in terms of interest rates, we have that working for us. And there's an overall kind of downtrend in interest rates. And, and I would have imagined that would continue, especially with everything going on. So the cost of taking out a mortgage has been relatively cheap. In terms of down payment, it there it comes back to the the personal preference, like I mentioned. Yeah. I read an article the other day, it caught my eye. It's like you should not buy a house if you can't afford a 15-year mortgage and put 20% down. And you know, I would argue that that's that's taking a lot of things, you know, it's true if you if you think debt is absolutely evil, but at the same time, you also aren't really taking as much of advantage as you can of the historically low interest rates that are being offered. You know, if a bank is going to lend you $250,000 at 3% interest, years down the road, what if interest rates are a lot higher? You know, that's a really good deal to have 3% interest when maybe a mortgage in 10 years from now could be 5% or 6%. So it all comes down to personal preference. 
in terms of a down payment. I would say, you know, to be to be on the safer side, you want a bit as big of a down payment as as you can, I guess. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people, I would say on the conservative side, they say you want 20%. But I think for a lot of people, if you really want to buy a house, you know, 20% down payment just isn't really realistic. You know, a lot of people just aren't going to be able to cough up that much cash. And I think the biggest mistake that you can do is to spend all of your cash on a down payment where you do you have some immediate equity in the house, but then you run into a bunch of move-in expenses, a bunch of unexpected expenses as soon as you get in, and you end up racking up five, ten thousand dollars on a credit card at fifteen percent. Yeah. In hindsight, that's not a, a very good situation. So you don't want to spend all of your cash on a down payment. I would say the the biggest risk of because you can go. I think 3% with a 30-year conventional mortgage is, is possible. And that's on the really lower side. And you know, the, it has the potential to backfire on you in the sense that, you know, let's say if you bought a house right before uh, a rough patch in the economy or even a couple months ago, you know, let's say housing prices come down 10%. If you only had 3% down payment, you are starting at your mortgage with very little equity, meaning that what you actually own compared to what you owe is very small. And so if house prices come down, now all of a sudden you're underwater. You have negative equity. You know, you owe more than what that house is worth. So when you have a very small down payment, you run the risk if house prices come down, which they can, you run the risk of having a hard time getting out of that house when you want to. You know, and that's what this the really difficult part of 2008 was is that people didn't put a lot of money down on a house, housing prices crashed, and everyone was underwater. They had negative equity. People owed $350,000 on their mortgage, and it was worth two fifty. And so mm-hmm. to sell that house, you need to cough up hundred grand, or you have to foreclose and go that route. And so that is the risk of, of buying a house with a, a small down payment, is, is housing prices come down, but at the same time, you know, you could get lucky in the sense that if you bought a house five years ago and put nothing down, you'd be okay. You know, you would have already built a lot of equity, at least in my area. You know, housing prices have done nothing but go up in the last several years. So, right. so there's no right or wrong answer. And again, it comes back to comparing what can I do with my cash versus what can I do by putting a bigger down payment on my mortgage. And I think with interest rates this low, it, it kind of tips the scales a little bit more. And, and this also comes back to kind of being more analytical with it. But with low interest rates, it allows people to put a little bit less down. Compared to where interest rates were in the 80s, you know, it was 18% mortgage rates. And so then it made a lot of sense to put a huge down payment down and to take out a 15-year mortgage. Yeah, gotcha. Well, I want to make sure I get a few more things in here before the last couple questions. Is there, I guess I'll, I'll jump right to the stock market. I want you to maybe come up with a couple of quick to-dos and maybe not to-dos when it comes to, you know, brokerage accounts and, and jumping into stock market and, the, and bonds and all that kind of stuff. Sure. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely a, an interesting time to, to be looking at the stock market. I think with, you know, all of the brokerage companies going to zero trades, and there's also news sites like Betterment that make 
trading really appealing and really easy and really cheap for people. So a lot of people our age are, are looking at buying and selling stocks. And I think for the most part, people have gotten it right that, you know, when, once the market crashed, a lot of my friends are asking me, what should I be buying? So, you know, I would say if you're looking at investing in stocks, first, you know, prioritize the things we talked about earlier. If you are looking to make an investment into something, that is done through your 401k and your Roth IRA or your Roth 401k. And that's a long-term investment into the stock market and, and an investment to build your wealth. And so I think if you are kind of new to, to the stock market and new to buying and selling stocks, use small amounts and think of it as more gambling than it is an investment. Because when you're buying individual stocks, even a great company can get cut in half within the span of a couple of weeks. And so don't invest your down payment on a house uh, in individual stocks. Don't invest money that you really think you're going to need in the next couple of years because you have a much bigger risk of losing it. At the same time, you have a bigger potential to, to make a lot of money with individual stocks. So you know, I think when, when people are, are getting used to or, or just getting into trading individual stocks or buying and selling, maybe not day traders, but are, they're considering buying some, I think you can do pretty well with the old Warren Buffett quote. As he said, um, buy when others are fearful and sell when others are greedy. And so, you know, a lot of, a lot of younger investors, I think, stepped in and, and bought, you know, certain companies, the tech companies over the last several weeks, just because they knew, hey, everyone is fearful. That's the best time to be buying stocks. And the worst thing you can do is, is try to chase returns and look at the stocks that have done really well over the last several years, although those have continued to do well to everybody's surprise with all the tech stocks. But the worst thing you can do is try to chase returns. And if anything, maybe look at a, a good company that you're familiar with that, that maybe has been beaten up a little bit and, and consider throwing a little bit of money in there. But I would suggest anyone who's, who's looking at stocks is to think of it as a gamble. And to really be careful and don't use enough money that you're not willing to lose, you know, at least a, a decent percentage of it. Gotcha. Awesome. Well, I love it. Well, before I ask the last question, uh, Tom, I want to make sure I acknowledge you. I really appreciate you spending the time here today. I know you probably talk about this stuff all the time with a bunch of different people and sometimes it can probably get uh, monotonous, but I really appreciate you spending the time and bringing everybody so much great value and so many great actionable things that they can start to do right now. I know that in our conversations prior and our conversation now has given me a lot of personal value and things that I know that I can start taking action on and start doing. And I know everybody out there is going to feel the same way. Hopefully that you guys were engaged when you were listening. Um, if you need to go back and take notes, make sure you take notes because there's tons of practical things in here that you're going to want to make sure you're applying. So thanks so much for spend the time. And I want to make sure everybody can go and, you know, support you and everything you're doing. Where can people go and, and hop on your y'all's website and everything like that? Yeah. So our website, it's, we're actually in the middle of a, a refresh that you should probably see in, in the next month or so. We're, we're just redoing our copyright and some of the graphics, but it's petersonwealthmanagement.com. And that's where you can see our website. I'm actually going to be starting a, a Twitter account soon and getting more involved with social media and I got to say, this is my first podcast that I've ever done. And it's kind of opened my eyes up to, to the whole medium. I think that's really where a lot of, of people are going in our industry for, for marketing and kind of brand awareness, both podcasts and blogs. So I think you're doing a really good thing. And, and I, I might try to take some ideas from you. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. Yeah, I think it's a great way to 
give quick, actionable things that people get value from, but also a way to kind of entice people to want to know a little bit more. Yeah, exactly. Hey, also, before I wanted to mention, I forgot to earlier, a good website that covers a lot of the stuff that we talked about today. It's called Nerd Wallet. And if you've ever searched, I was looking at that today, credit cards, you know, that I, I was looking at it earlier just to get some ideas of stuff to talk about with you. And I was really, I think it started out as kind of a credit card rating website, but they really turned it into some, some really good information. And they had some good information on, on advice of buying houses and different types of accounts, savings accounts, and what to think about. So I would suggest your listeners to, to check out that website. I think they're really good at, at explaining things, and it's a good resource. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I had actually I had seen it a while back, but my brother brought it to my attention this morning. So it's funny that you bring that up. Well, the last question, Tom, I'm going to spin the last question a little bit differently. Usually it's more of a personal question, but I want to spin it a little bit more towards the finances since that's been our topic. But the question is, I think that getting closer to the best version of yourself is a constant journey. And I think it's a unique journey. I think that the way that I get closer to the best version of myself is going to be a little bit different than the way that you get close to the best version of yourself. But still for you personally, what are three money habits that you need to be doing in order to get to the best financial version of yourself? Hmm, good question. Good question. Hmm. I would say, I would say the first would be to, to spend, and this is going to be different than a lot of financial advice that people hear, spend money heavily on the things and experiences that you really, really enjoy and cut costs you know, immensely on the things that, that you really don't care about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you should prioritize what, what money means to you and what you want to get from it and, and try to have a a health or I try to have kind of a healthy relationship with money and that I, you know, I, I like to travel and I like to, to go on vacations and, and I'll spend money on that stuff, even maybe more than some people would suggest. Or, you know, I, I, I won't turn down a fun trip just because I'm like, gosh, you know, I, I, I'm trying to save up for a house or something. So, you know, spend money on your experiences and things that you'll get out of life, I think is really important. And I think that's something that millennials have gotten pretty well down, to kind of be a theme of our generation. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I would say automate your finances, automate your savings, and have your bills on auto pay. You know, if you're saving for something or if you're, you're putting money into an investment account, have that come out automatically. So you don't even know it. You don't see it. Use separate accounts, title them, you know, down payment on a house, Europe vacation. Use automation and technology as your, your friend. And my third money habit, I would say, my third one is really just to educate yourself. I think that's really important, and, and we're, we're living in a time where we have the, the ability to, to have a lot of resources online. You have access to what people would love to have be reading back you know, before the internet, and you know, there's a lot of really good resources out there to, to just to educate yourself to make wise decisions, and you can find a, a simple answer to just about anything if you look at it. And, you know, that's obviously that's what I kind of do in my profession, but 
I've learned that a lot more by, you know, shopping for a house lately. I've had to read up on a lot and, uh, you know, I've, I've been able to, to learn a lot too. I love it. Yeah. Take it upon yourself to make sure that you kind of know the justifications behind certain, certain things for sure. Um, well, I want to make sure before we finish because of compliance reasons, if you would go ahead and some disclosure for sure. everybody. So this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not a complete description of the securities, markets, or developments referred to in this material. Any opinions are those of the speaker and not necessarily those of Raymond James. There's no guarantee that these statements, opinions, or forecasts provided in herein will prove to be correct. Investing involves risk, and you may incur a profit or loss regardless of the strategy selected. Keep in mind that individuals cannot direct, uh, directly invest in an index. An index performance does not include transaction costs or other fees, which will affect investment performance. Individual results will vary. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Raymond James and its advisors do not offer tax or legal advice. You should discuss any tax or legal matters with the appropriate professional. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors. Peterson Wealth Management is not a registered broker-dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services. <laughs> ah, awesome. Perfect. That's all we got, Tom. Appreciate it. <laughs> all right. Great talking to you, Nick. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Of course. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed this super timely episode with Tom. Who in your life is struggling with their finances? Who in your life is young and looking to build wealth? Who in your life is looking to buy a house? Send them this episode. Don't let one more day go by. Don't let one more second go by without you giving them the tools that they need to secure financial wealth and security. And don't let a day go by in your life when you don't take action on all this information. Be sure to go to petersonwealthmanagement.com to learn more about how Tom may be able to support you and yours. Remember, finances can be tricky and complicated, but there are ways to simplify it. Find one financial strategy that you agree with that you can get behind and stick with it. Don't pull from multiple different sources because those people all have different justifications for why they're saying what they're saying. You could end up being counterproductive with your actions. So take control of your finances by going back and taking notes on this episode if you haven't yet already. Building the right financial accounts early, paying off the right debt, having the proper retirement accounts, and being smart when looking to buy a house will all help you get closer and closer to your best you.